You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and uh, hopefully people out there enjoy it. I don't know uh, my, what else what else we can say about it, but that, those are the facts. Release it into the wild, um, <laughs> for better or worse, uh, so yeah. <laughs> see what we can come up with. Hopefully we yeah, don't well, make feels... too big of a fool of ourselves. Yeah. Feels a little weird. I don't know. Every time we take a week off, whenever we come back, it feels like we've been forever since we've uh, recorded anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and last week was just crazy. We made some changes in mom's care and we had people in and out and it was just like a solid week of just busyness. And mm-hmm. one day we had three appointments on a single day and that was just, well, it was the day before we were supposed to record. So I was done. <laughs> just absolutely done. <laughs> Yeah, so that's why there was no show last week, and so we appreciate everyone kind of being patient with us, giving us a little grace as we, <laughs> right, as we absolutely. move forward. So but, yeah, hated so. to do it, but it was necessary because I'm afraid every, the only thing anybody would have gotten was gobbledygook, and I'm not making guarantees about this week's episode either. So <laughs> okay, well, stay tuned. It might be fun, everybody. Let's see what happens. <laughs> More coffee. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So last time we talked about, oh, what did we talk about? Solomon and the weird story and the wild we, rooster. The wild rooster and how we interpret some of that. Are we are we wrapped with that or yeah, we we're, we're have pretty more much, on the? I think that pretty much hit all of our uh, high points on that. And you know, and, and once again, just because uh, I don't think I can say it enough, I don't want anyone to think we're suggesting that that was in any way divinely inspired. Uh, you know, that, that we're not saying that that has any kind of, uh, of uh, biblical value or, you know, all we're saying is that these stories that are often maligned as nonsensical or without purpose within the Talmud, uh, there is a reason for it. And that reason was to let people kind of pull back from the facts and examine the story in a way that gave them room without having room to question without having to criticize or impugn Solomon for who he was. So that's the purpose Mm -hmm. there. These stories aren't in there to say, this is actually what happened. And this is the reason why that, that um, oral tradition and being able to take things from a teacher to a student and give those explanations was so important. And you lose a lot when things are written down and you don't have those wise people walking you through the process. So um, that that's pretty much um, was where we were going. And so now that everybody hears once again that uh, absolutely not divinely inspired, I'm in my new office and like the sun just shifted and hit me square in the eye <laughs> since we set up. Yeah. <laughs> I've been watching that. Uh, I've been watching those beams creep across. You might need to get another blanket there for the. Uh, oh my goodness! Yeah, well, I'll, I'll probably get some some curtains. Yeah, that's what civilized people put up. 
curtains. So <laughs> well, or really thick curtains because you're you're gonna need to get some lighting control in there. Yeah, and you know, like the sun rays filtering through the leaves. Okay, but <laughs> yeah, I, I I can tell that those are trees. <laughs> well, that's the reason why I chose this spot as my office so I can look out and see the trees. Um, is yeah, for those who aren't watching, we are actually in my study after a year of being in the house. Um, we actually have it set up and usable. So I am happy about that. I have a real desk for the first time yeah. in like almost a decade. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, so we're good picking, to have a dedicated space. Oh my gosh. That's the only way I'm able to get things done. Uh, so we are picking up in first Kings chapter six, verse eight. We're still talking about the construction of the temple. And that was what the whole story of the wild rooster was, was how does Solomon manage to um, do the, um, the construction of the temple without any iron tools on site. And we were talking about how he took the, uh, the command not to use iron tools on the rocks of the altar one step further. And if y'all don't remember going through Saul's story, that should give us a tip off. Things are not going to go well with Solomon. They aren't going to be what they should be because anytime we start adding to God's command, Anytime we start taking things farther so we can be a little bit more holy, a little bit more pious, there's going to be an issue. And that's what happened with Saul, because Saul was very religious. He just didn't understand God's mm -hmm. heart. And so that was the, the yeah. main contrast between David and Saul. So Yeah, yeah. speaking of uh, very religious, was it, was it Brueggemann uh, who, uh, it was a man we trust, wasn't it, where mm -hmm. he compared Saul, David, and Solomon? and yes. And... Uh, talked about how Saul, or Solomon was actually, uh, you know, Saul, Saul was like religious in a superstitious sense. Mm -hmm. And David was almost irreligious uh, right. in the way he lived, in the way he approached uh, God. And then Solomon was, was like hyper-religious. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting book. I I definitely recommend it if you get a chance to to flip through it. Um, it's not a yeah, long read a, either. Yeah, yeah, it's a really yeah, it's a pretty short book. Yeah, this thing Brueggemann does a lot of really short books. By, I really appreciate that part of it. Yeah. Um, but and that the, was um, one of the okay. books that was assigned to me in seminary for wisdom literature. So mm -hmm. it, it it is a well respected book, and Brueggemann always has an opinion worthy of consideration. So he's right. one of my favorites. May not agree with everything, yeah. but yeah, there there are there are a couple of his opinions that I that I, uh, I don't agree with. But they, he definitely has he definitely lets you think about the scriptures uh, in ways you haven't before. Right. Um, but but speaking of, of adding to uh, to God's word, it was like really interesting. I can't remember. I wish I could remember which podcast I was listening to, but um, they were talking about. Uh, the way different groups, uh, you know, how basically different religious sects tend to uh, be built on reactions, and one of the uh, one of the the comments they made was uh, the opposite of heresy is heresy, <laughs> and I was like, oh man, that, that's, that's actually... interesting because I was thinking you were talking about how Solomon is a little uh, overzealous at times, mm -hmm. and how. You know, we we tend to think of oh, well, these people are doing it, doing it this way, and it's not really, uh, it's not really religious enough. It's not good enough, and so you react to how other people would be doing things, and you say, oh, well, we're going to do it the opposite way. 
Right. And uh, so I think that that was to, you know, again, it's kind of a loose tie into what we're talking about. That's but, actually a um, really good observation. I, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> that is a, that's a great observation because I think so often we, we are reactionary and, you know, that's just, that's not a good thing. And we're called to discernment. We're called to uh, making wise decisions. But that, that was a, like I said, I don't know exactly how well that, that ties in on the, uh, the opposite thing. No, I, uh, I think I'll I'll be glad to hear your commentary. I heard like little bits of it, <laughs> and it was funny because I could tell by the way it was coming through what you were saying was way sped up and obviously out of order. Oh, on my end, so um, word salad, which is weird. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't even remember so, what I was saying now. So uh, moving on, <laughs> we're and I had another point on that that I was oh. getting to, but then I forgot because of Skype. So uh, if I come back to it, I'll uh, I'll let you. Know. Okay. <laughs> Well, we're we're picking up in First Kings, uh, chapter six. We're in verse eight, and I'm not going to read through this. Um, you know, a lot of this. Oh, I had I had it, and and this will actually <laughs> will tie in. I'm sorry. I everybody loves this stuff, you know, right? So, um, anyway, the, I, I was thinking actually, and this is just a a thought I put out there. I haven't done any research on it because I, I I was I know I was listening to this podcast while so I was weed eating, so I haven't had a chance to really. <laughs> to look it up but i was i was thinking about and this will tie in later to uh when we get into later into kings Mm -hmm. you know we we, we've mentioned a few times the book of deuteronomy uh was lost and then recovered Mm -hmm. right um so i find it really interesting uh and this kind of like with the uh the extremist thing is the you know you can kind of look at this some ways in the way that some people are you know locked down on the canon kind of the reaction against uh bringing things into the the faith that they're not used to mm-hmm. but it's kind of like you know they, they ask the question of like well if we need the bible to if we needed all these other things to understand what god wanted then why are they just why were they lost for so long and just now coming back i'm like we literally have a biblical precedent for this right right yeah i, I hadn't thought about that but you are absolutely correct and, you know, it isn't like, you know, maybe God reveals things as people and culture is ready, are ready. I, you know, we... Or even not necessarily when we're ready, but when we need it. Right, right. Well, it, you know, sometimes I think a lot of our problems would be solved if we could just trust God to know what he's doing, mm-hmm. to know what he wants. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really do. I think it's that simple. And stop trying to help him out. Because I think so often where we see people getting into trouble, I know in my own life and then in the scripture is when I'm trying to help God out. When I think I'm smarter than he is, and I think for some reason I can, I can make a decision or discern something at a deeper level than what he's revealed to us. And, you know, God need, needs to be God. And that needs to mm-hmm. be something we need to get very comfortable with and accepting of and stop trying to figure out a, a loophole around. And sometimes mm-hmm. we, we think that loophole is piety, excessive, pious nature that just leaves no room for humanity. And the problem is, at that point, then our human nature tends to take over and we begin to define what being pious looks like according to our likes or dislikes, what makes us mad, what offends us. And, and instead of taking responsibility for it, we actually ascribe 
our offended nature and our anger and wrath towards something towards God when maybe God would be right there on the you know front lines extending mercy and compassion saying you know I want repentance I want to draw you to me and I I just I get frustrated when I when I hear a lot of Christians who are so angry about this issue or that issue why why are we I know like I'm going off on a left field here but why are we so angry about somebody else's sin and we're so comfortable with our own I mm-hmm. that I think that's what we've got to get down to can we extend our neighbor the same level of compassion we extend ourselves to excuse whatever it is whatever sin we're indulging in and sometimes that that sin is nothing more than just arrogance and pride in the fact that we were the quote unquote chosen ones. And we Rain. need to get over that real quick. So anyhow, um, anyway, as I was saying, first Kings chapter six. <laughs> Have we even got to the text? We haven't. We haven't. Um, I, you know what? This is what happens when we take a week off. Like uh, we just kind of meander because we've got all the stuff like built up in our heads and I have been home nonstop except for doctor's appoint, appointments. So, um, yeah, I don't get a lot of these conversations these days. <laughs> right. So I'm kind of like that bottle of pop that get, was shook up too too long. So. Yeah, we got to look into getting some of those friends. <laughs> what are those? Or, no, yeah. <laughs> no. I Okay. And I made that. Keep hearing about. <laughs> I made that comment. I do have to say I've got like some amazing friends, but most of them live in different states or different countries. And so um, getting to actually see them is not always uh, feasible, but I do have good friends and I, I do want to point that out. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah. We- but we're, we're talking about now, uh, the, like I said, the construction of the temple. This is, seems kind of boring. Uh, there's some interesting things in here. And I, because it is kind of cut and dry, I do take a lot of side trails with this because I want it to be more, uh, more exciting than just a blueprint. And so a lot of these verses, I probably won't read through, you know, a lot of them I will, but I kind of want to just hit some high points and and move on. So it says, uh, verse verse eight is a description of the outer cells that they're on three sides of the temple. And we learn that the entrance to these cells is on the south side and uh, they're entered from the outside. They aren't entered from the sanctuary. And they had stairs between the floors. Uh, Some traditions say that these are spiral stairs. We really aren't certain. Um, in verse 8, we're also told about the finishes, the ceiling beams, and the planks of cedar. Uh, verse 9 tells us that the cell structures uh, are five cubits high, and the structure is around the whole house, and it joins um, the temple with cedar timbers. Now, one thing to remember is that five cubit high, that is an interior measurement. And I think that's one of the big things we need to remember when we're talking about this. These are interior me- uh, measurements, and the, the wall thickness itself would have been greater because we're dealing with stone here. And so anytime you add that, now we're dealing with a greater level of, uh, of thickness. Uh, but mm-hmm. then once we kind of get through these architectural uh, details, God addresses Solomon once again. But this time, uh, there's no described ritual or ceremony. He hasn't gone to make a sacrifice. He isn't sleeping in the temple or by the ark. Like he was, or uh, sorry, at a high place. He wasn't with the ark. The ark was in Jerusalem. Uh, He's not doing any of that. It's just God appears. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. There's no prologue there. So we don't know exactly how this word came. 
Uh, sometimes when this phrase is used, there's a prophet who's come and the prophet's just kind of obscured because the message is more important than the, the messenger. That's possible. But the writer presents it almost as if God is speaking directly with Solomon, which isn't really un, you know, unheard of or uncommon because uh, we know that God had a direct conversation with Solomon in the past. So verse 12 says, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey the rules and keep my commands and walk in them, I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people of Israel. So in many ways, this is a reiteration of what God said to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. But it's also a reiteration of what God said to David in uh, Samuel second, uh, 2 Samuel 22, uh, that basically God's favor and God's blessing rest on the one who keeps his statutes and walks in his way. Um, but I think more importantly, we need to remember now that Solomon has an obligation to the people as king. It's not just about Solomon, the man, doing what's right and doing what's appropriate. As king, his spiritual well-being, his spiritual status is actually going to impact the spiritual status of the people. And you've got to remember back in Samuel, uh, we have 1 Samuel 12, we have Samuel himself warning the people when they're asking for a for a king that the king is going to be able to have a direct impact on whether God blesses them as a nation. Uh, so I'm going to read ver um, verses 14 and 15. It says, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and both you and your king, notice there, both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So here we see this playing out in real time in Solomon's life. The voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord has come to Solomon. He's giving Solomon direct instructions and saying, this is how you safeguard my people against calamity, against my judgment. And the, the purpose of this conversation is to remind Solomon of one very important fact. The temple is not some kind of cage for God. God will not be imprisoned in this house that Solomon is creating for him. God does not need this temple to, <clears throat> excuse me, to protect, you know, to protect his being or to protect his essence. This house is a concession to humanity's needs to connect with God. And mm -hmm. this is completely counter to what would have been going on in the cultures around Solomon's um, kingdom in this day. I, I want to read this quote from John Walton. This is from his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. It said that God's needs were not cared for just so that the people would be graced with good harvest. The temple was the control center. Notice that the control center for the order of the cosmos and that order had to be maintained. The deity needed, needed to be cared for so that he or she could focus on his or her energies to the important works of holding the, um, holding the forces of chaos at bay. The rituals, therefore, serve not simply as gifts to the deity or mechanical liturgical words and action. The rituals provided the means by which humans could play a role in maintaining the order in the chaos. So 
Solomon is really trying to um, trying to figure out where this temple, or he evidently needs some kind of guidance in where this temple sets in the um, uh, in the way things. Sorry, uh, my I had a technical glitch there. I hope that came through. Uh, Solomon has is trying to figure out how things work in the um, with this temple, and is it going to be counter to the 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 standard of his day, or is it mm-hmm. going to be something that is wholly unique and wholly individualized to Israel itself? So. And because I don't have video, Nathan, I can't tell. Are you still there? Uh, yeah, okay. I'm still here. Because I, I had a little technical glitch there, so I wanted to make sure I didn't completely lose you. So, you know, when we read what Walton's saying here, what we don't want to miss what, he, what he's really trying to communicate. Ancient Near East, Eastern temples were not built for the people. They were built for the gods, to put it in the most simple terms possible. They were built because the gods needed them. They were a care center, a control center. And in these temples, humans would bathe the god. They would clothe the god. They would feed the god. They would take care of what they deemed to be the god's physical needs. And these became, um, became places where the gods were dependent on humanity in order to be god. So mm-hmm. the the temple in Jerusalem is supposed to be something completely counter to that. A total reversal because God doesn't need a house. You know, kind of like Star Trek, God doesn't need a spaceship. So Right. <laughs> and Walton also notes that in Egypt the king occupies the most pivotal role in these ritual observances. It's the king who facilitates all of these acts because it's his job to authorize priests but also to transfer cosmic order, to transfer the cosmic order that's established in the temples back to society through these special rituals and providing the means to maintain a social and political order. So when we remember, Solomon has already been shown, the writer of Kings has been very particular in reminding us Solomon has all these connections back to Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter. We're told this before he begins to uh, do any great acts of public worship. Uh, Solomon's extensive stables and chariots. Where did he get those? Egypt. This is going to be his source for those. He has symbolically enslaved his people to complete these building projects. Like who? Pharaoh. And so we, when we read this interruption of the building process, because we still have a ways to go, we see that God's saying, hey, I see which road you're heading on, uh, I, heading down. I see what you're reading into this process because you've got all this influence. At least this is how I read the passage. You have all this influence that's causing you to interpret this house the wrong way. So we want to make sure that you don't go there. We're going to pull you back and make a course correction before you completely get out of line. And mm-hmm. so, as Maxie Birch was saying, it doesn't happen today, but it did back then. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to explain that to me. Maybe I need more coffee. 
<laughs> oh, the, I was the Maxi Birch and his his uh, history of Christianity podcast. Anytime something like that would happen, that like you know abuses of power or uh, things that people bicker over or things like that, he'd be like, you know, it 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 doesn't happen today, but it did back then, right? You know, uh, yeah. Well, it, it, this is where we've got to stop reading these stories as examples of what to do. And start reading them as cautionary tales. I, I, you know, a lot of our misperceptions about the Bible would be fixed if we would stop going, oh, well, this is an example of how I'm supposed to live. No, you're not supposed to have four wives. No, you're not right. supposed to be you know, offering your children on, on altars. You're, you know, these are not good things. Don't ha- commit adultery. Not good things. And so if we start reading it properly as it was intended, as it was written, we could like shut up a lot of the critiques about the Bible. And I I think it's hilarious when I get online and somebody starts defending, you know, immorality or, or the violation of ethics by biblical heroes and saying, oh, it's okay that, you know, Samson went to go see a prostitute. No, no. Stop trying to right. defend that. You know, yeah, well, yeah, and then, and then of, of course, the only way you can get there is by introducing introducing special pleading, mm-hmm. which it, it's like anytime you say that something counter to what God has said is good, yeah, then then you you're obviously in error. So you're you yeah you're reading it wrong. Well, and I came across a memory of something I'd posted on Facebook uh, just yesterday, and I was talking about Deborah. You know, this is why we have so many people who have a problem with uh, female leadership, because they, they want to point to Deborah as a special case, because they think that God will violate what he says when he's backed into a corner. Mm-hmm. And that just, it doesn't happen. God does not violate his word because we as humans backed him into a corner. Deborah wasn't chosen because God had no other options. If you think that's the case, your God's too little. And so when mm-hmm. we read these stories, it's, we're reading how people responded to what God wanted and we're being shown whether it was appropriate or inappropriate. Solomon makes mistakes. That's the reason why the kingdom is divided after he dies. And we never find any kind of sin without consequence. So we need to keep that in mind when we're reading that, that there are consequences to sin throughout the Bible. And God doesn't say, well, you know, it's okay. It's just fine if you do whatever you want to do, because you're my special little person and I love you more than everybody else. That's not there. You cannot find Mm -hmm. that in scripture. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of on like this vendetta against people who think they're special this week. I don't know why. Um. Well, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's the, we're missing the point because the point is God still does what he wants to do in spite of people screwing it up. Yes. There's, there's not a much better way to read the Bible than that. Well, and that's where I believe one of the most amazing demonstrations of his sovereignty is the fact that he redeems all things. He doesn't have Mm -hmm. to control all things, but he is absolutely willing, capable, and wants to redeem all things. So we can Mm -hmm. be participants in that process or not. We get to choose. And so, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us uh, don't realize that it's his redemptive powers that really demonstrate his sovereignty sovereignty 
more than his ability to dictate. So, anyway, verse 14. (coughs) Pardon me. So Solomon built the house and finished it, and he lined the walls of the house on the inside with cedar, from the floor to the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Uh, Art Scroll and their commentary, they suggest that cedar is used for the walls and ceilings because it's a taller tree, so you would get longer planks, whereas cypress is a shorter, wider tree, which would make it more suitable for um, floorboards. Uh, Makes sense to me, uh, but the Bible does not offer any commentary. That's just some kind of speculation, and but you know, it's not bad speculation. Uh, Verse 6. Yeah, sometimes what is practical is is what is... uh... Right? <laughs> yeah. Is what's done. Exactly. So, verse 16, he built 20 cubits of, of the um, rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanction, a sanctuary of the most holy place. And so, we have this separate room that's being constructed within the temple itself. And I wanted to pause and point out something because, you know, I'm always reacting to stuff I, I read on the internet. Uh, I heard somebody, or I read where somebody said that the term holy of holies was a Talmudic rabbinical construction, and then they went on to talk about how bad the rabbis in the Talmud was, and basically called it a doctrine of Satan, and that you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, Except where it's written. uh, Yeah, so I wanted to take a moment to to talk about the construction here because in hebrew uh the, it says la kodesh ha kodeshim so that's kodesh is holy so the holy of the holies plural im that kodeshim is is the plural version of that and so holy of holies and even even i've picked up enough like Hebrew context (laughs) in what little bit we've talked to figure out, like, I couldn't have told you the words, but when you said uh, Kodesh and then added the the Mm -hmm. em at the end of it, I'm like, well, yeah, that's kind of obvious. (laughs) Well, and it is. I mean, this is like first semester Hebrew. So when you hear somebody saying this, number one, they don't know any Hebrew or they haven't bothered to use their Hebrew. Uh, This very little translation, holy of holies. Well, it doesn't. Well, (laughs) Go ahead. Well, it doesn't work. It, it it doesn't get more literal than that. And well, the 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 problem is is most of the people who want to do everything hyper literal wants to do it hyper literal according to their favorite English translation. Yes, yes. And I that's I don't know if that's where you were going. I I but wasn't, but it's yeah, you're right. But, you know, oh, and you know, it's like right now, and um, I'm I am gonna get a little offensive here. Um, because I mean, whatever degree, but not, not like obscene (laughs) offensive, but, um, but right now there is a huge debate among a lot of people who are in these reform camps saying, and they're, they're wanting to talk about the great commission and they're saying, well, Jesus said to go and disciple all nations. No, he said, make disciples of all nations. But what they're... (laughs) What they're doing is they're using the English word without any context. And like you and I talked about this the other day, if you knew the Jewish context for the word goy or goyim, meaning Mm -hmm. nations, which is also how they referred to as Gentiles 
And Jesus yes. was saying, take this to the Gentiles. He wasn't talking about nation states, which didn't even come around to the last, what, what, 300 years? You know, it's, it, it's totally anachronistic and absurd. And it's not even, it's an argument that I don't think, uh, you know, you would get past your first year of seminary. No, because and I have yeah. I've not even been to seminary, and I know that that you know the context is goyim, which is the common word that the that the Jewish people would use for non-Jews at the time. We anyone who wasn't of, Gentiles, yeah, anyone who wasn't of the elect covenantal nation of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, because that messes with theology. When you start yeah. actually making it real life, it messes with theology. And that's fine. Right. We, and, we need well, and, to... <laughs> well, I'm going to say, now, now people will say now, because it was in the New Testament, so it was Greek, so I think it was like ethne or something like that mm-hmm. would have been the, the word in, in Matthew. Which is where we get ethnic. Yeah, which we get ethnic, but it's also, um, but that would have been the closest Greek word to what yeah. the Jews would have used in their context. So it's uh, like... You, you it's, mean the word that they, was used in the Septuagint? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's like it's like literally it 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 it's show me how you pick and choose your scripture without telling me you pick and choose all your scripture. You know, it's it, it's exactly that. And it to me it's like that insults the intelligence of everybody. But they're using this term to say disciple all nations as in to say we as Christians need to be making sure that all of our laws and all of our lawmakers are Christian. And that's not the point of that verse. Right. You, now, and, do I think it's great if we can elect you know, Christian officials? Absolutely. But you know what happens? Yeah. I'm going to get political here for just—I'm just going to tiptoe up mm-hmm. it, to it. Too often what we have are people claiming to be Christians who really aren't Christians in order to get the Christian vote, and we aren't using any discernment to, to mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. understand who or what we're voting for. So. You know, if the first thing you put on your your political flyer is that you're a Christian, I'm probably going to look at you with a little bit of a jaundiced eye, and I'm going to be looking and uphold you to, and hold you accountable to a Christian standard and not discount actions that violate our Christian um, ethnic morality. Uh, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. Yeah, actual so, Christian ethics and moralities, and not yes. the party line stuff. Thank so, you. Yeah. yeah. I, but yeah, that so that's that's my little rant mm-hmm. about um, hyperliteralization because if you're going to be hyperliteral, you're going to have to go back to the at least to the original language and talk about what they meant, and not use your favorite English translation. Pretty much. Sorry Pretty to much. take us on a tear there, but that that's just to me. It's just it's it's an insipid it's an insipid argument. You could tell we haven't like, had much chance to talk like off. Mike, this yeah. week either. Well, <laughs> we usually I mean, get all of this out of our system like before we start recording. <laughs> right. Yeah. So okay. But. Well, back to my point because uh, this is this holy of holies is a Hebrew idiom, and this is not just used with holy of holies. We we know it. We're so familiar with how it's used because it's like, King of Kings, Lord yeah, of Lords. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was like. Oh, yeah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, it all makes sense. Yeah, heavens of heavens. So anytime we hear, like most of your English translations will say most high heavens or in the, the uttermost parts of the heavens, the, the Hebrew behind that is the heavens, uh, Shemaim. So mm-hmm. you've got the, the, the holy of uh, the heavens of heavens. So 
this is a way of communicating. So when people try to denounce something as being, you know, demonic or satanic, and it's really part of the, the Bible, that tells you you need to be careful with... Um, Literally everything else they say. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and because they, you know, two minutes of research could have fixed that problem for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyhow... Verse 17, the house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was covered in the form of gourds and open flowers, all with cedar, no stone to be seen. So everything, the, the stonework that Hiram brought in was um, covered over with the cedar. You couldn't see it. And the last 20 cubits of the, or the last third, either way, of the building was set apart for the Holy of Holies. And the remaining 40 is what we would think of as the sanctuary and the portion of the building where people would gather. And the Hebrew word uh, where it says in front, uh, the house that is in front is actually uh, lafde, which is to face uh, or in front of the face. And so the, the priest took this as an opportunity to create a uh, connect um, two different Hebrew forms of this word which would mean to turn to face. So the, this act of uh, entering the temple was seen as turning to face God. And it was to face one's own state of being and to begin that process of repentance. Just So they took this from being kind of an abstraction or an internal process. And they're saying that even as you engaged in just walking through to this holy place, now you're actually beginning the work of repentance. And so, you know, this was significant. I mean, it was very powerful because it would reinforce this idea. And it actually um, became part of the Jewish uh, tradition. After the temple was gone, when you pray, you still turn to face Jerusalem. You still turn to, to face the temple mount because it's to remind you that not only are you turning to face God, you're, you're turning to face, uh, you're not only are you turning to God in prayer, you're turning to face him, like to confront him. And I'm like, you know, that's a really huge concept because how many times in Christianity do we think about the fact that when we pray, we aren't just like sending, you know, paper airplanes to heaven. We're, we're coming face to face with God. We're confronting him. We're confronting ourselves. We're facing these things or we should be. And so that's powerful to, to think about coming into the presence of God. And I think we've kind of made it where God is so accessible to the masses, which he is, that we've kind of stripped away the impact of what we're doing when we pray. So uh, we're going to come back to the gourds and the open flowers. We're going to talk about those a little bit later. Um, but all the stone, like I said, covered with, uh, with wood and it's been hypothesized that the reason why it was covered with wood was because it's easier to apply the gold to the wood than it would be to apply it to stone, which mm -hmm. I've done some metal work that makes total sense to me. So it could very well just be a logistics. Well, yeah, um, I mean, wood's going to have a softer porous surface um, that you can mm -hmm. beat the, the gold into. Right. And this is going to be. Well, because like with gold, even, even if it's not like, even if it's not molten, if you have thin sheets of it, it's soft enough that if you tap it into wood, it will actually like kind of Adhere. bond into the mm -hmm. pores. 
Oh yeah, and gold leaf like is crazy to work with, and that's that's another thing. They there's a debate: was this gold leaf? Um, was it sheets of gold? Was it somehow um, dipped poured? in gold? <laughs> yeah, and, and so they there's all this question about exactly what technique was used, and part of that's because people want to know how much gold was in here. You know, how many tons of gold were, were used? Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? Uh, I, I don't have a good answer. I, I've seen various numbers uh, on that, but we just know that gold was present and we're going to talk about why that's important. But one of the things I thought was interesting is by, by covering the interior with wood and then gold and Herod, whenever he, or the second temple, which was also known as Herod's temple, when this practice was replicated for that second temple, this became very significant because remember Jesus, whenever he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left on top of the other. Mm -hmm. With having the whole place lined with wood that's capable of being burned mm -hmm. and wood that's covered with gold, now you have the ideal situation for this building to be, well, first you can burn it. You have the ability to set it on fire, whether when was sorry, oh my goodness, the words aren't wordy. Uh, if the um, if it was just stone, you couldn't burn it, but the gold itself melts, and gold has a very low melting point. Mm -hmm. And so when it when it melted, it actually ran down into the crevices between the rocks, and so when the second temple was destroyed. And it was set on fire, and the the gold melted off of the wood after it had burned. They, the Romans came in and actually took the stones apart to get to the gold between the stones, and thus Jesus' uh, prophecy was fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So we see the the um, the foundational reason for that. You know, it's being laid back all the way with Solomon, and it's starting here. And that's really cool to me. I mean, not that the temple was destroyed, but it was, it's really cool to me that we see like the beginning steps to something that's going to have impact, which seems like something that wouldn't have any bearing. You know, it, it doesn't seem to be as important as it would be unless you know the historical process. Mm -hmm. So um, this is one of those curious things that, that always stick out to me. Anytime I can kind of see the beginning of a process and we can see how it plays out, I find that very fascinating. And it just, it reminds me of why we need, we need the Old Testament because this is where we see it with Solomon. We see the beginnings. We need the, the gospels because we, without it, we don't have Jesus um, prophecy. But until we study the history, we don't even know about the fulfillment of that prophecy because it's not in the Bible. So you need all of these elements. And this is, this is one of those little details that demonstrates that. So verse 19, the inner sanctuary he prepared for the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid, also overlaid an altar of cedar. Now, uh, this altar in verse 20 that's overlaid with gold is not the altar where the meat and grain offerings would have been burned. This is a different altar. This is the incense altar. And um, that's 
the reason why it could be overlaid in gold was because it never got high enough. The temperature never got high enough to melt it. And I actually looked up and you can buy uh, 24 karat gold incense burners today hmm. just because I was curious. <laughs> I mean, and, and probably at Solomon's time, even though this was, quote, fine gold is what the, the Hebrew means, it, it probably wasn't to that purity level. It sure. was probably something, you know, more like 18 to 10, somewhere around in there. Um, so, so, like I was saying earlier, Solomon's extensive use of gold has got a lot of people talking about the precise quantities. When I tried to look that up, I saw anywhere from 15 tons, which seems like a lot of gold, to 3,000 tons. Uh, so, which seems like even a lot more gold. Yeah. Yeah, uh, significantly more. So, okay, so what I gathered from these discrepancies. Nobody knows. uh, (laughs) Well, I'm not going to try to give you an exact amount because if the experts or so-called experts can't agree, I'm not going to pretend to be better than them. Uh, How much gold was used is going to depend on a number of factors. One is how much gold was in Solomon's possession. Based on the weights given in the text and used to construct the, the, in the construction of the temple uh, versus being what's being used in other projects. So, you know, yes, we have some, some numbers given about how much gold Solomon had in his treasury, but we don't know what percentage was used in the temple versus his own house and other things or the houses of his wives. Um, then there's controversy on which items in the temple were believed to be overlaid with gold. Uh, was it a floor covering? Were the walls and the ceilings or just certain walls? Were all the ceilings? Were the ceilings left bare? Was it the interior? Or was it the exterior too? I've read defenses of, both, uh, of all these views. And I can't say I came up with a definitive um, viewpoint on it. Uh, then, of course, like I said earlier, the, the third factor is what does overlay mean? Are we talking about plate, leaf, you know, smelting? What what type of uh, of uh, system are we talking? Somebody suggested that Solomon developed some kind of liquid glaze that had gold in it that gave the appearance of gold. I I, I don't know. I, I I'm not going to pretend to know. Uh, but the point is, each method requires a different amount of gold, mm-hmm. and so. Um, then you have the critics who say there's absolutely no possible way the temple can contain even the most minimal amount of gold because um, there simply wasn't enough gold in circulation at that point in time, and the cost would have been astronomical. However, they said the same thing um, popularly. It was said the same thing about Egyptian tombs and graves because they thought there's just no way that the Egyptians had access to that much gold. There's no way that they would have used it in that manner. And then we did some excavating and realized that the historical reports were, were accurate. And also, if you look to India at the same, same time period, we find the extensive use of gold in temples. And so, you know, to say that historically it's not possible is historically inaccurate. Mm. And so when people try to make like this very cynical, oh, well, it couldn't possibly be because I know how much gold people had that day and age, uh, you can kind of basically write them off as know-it-alls. So, um, 
but the the purpose of this isn't to give you a an exact measurement of gold that Solomon is going to use. That's not the point. The purpose is to tell you this was an extravagant building and it was furnished in the absolute highest, most decadent fashion that Solomon could manage. That's mm-hmm. the purpose of all of this. And that's what we need to keep in mind is what's going on here. What's the intent, both of Solomon and the writer of the book? What are we trying to, what are they trying to convey to us? And what they're trying to convey is this building was lavish. And so if you don't get that, then um, you have a problem. So gold was, um, was an appropriate choice because gold was one of the few things that was credited as being a direct creation of God. Uh, it wasn't a man-made alloy. It was something that's named in the Garden of Eden and the land sur- surrounding um, the Garden of Eden. You can look at gold, and even in its most raw form, you recognize that it's something different, that it's something of value. Um, so, it, And I say that it was in the Garden of Eden. I actually have the reference here, Genesis 2.11, and this is referring to the... Um, rivers flowing out of Eden, and it says the first was named Pishon, and it was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And so we find often things involved in the ritual worship of God um, incorporating this gold because it is something that God created for glory, for splendor at the very beginning of the earth. Verse 21, Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with pure gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner inner sanctuary was gold. Now, if you're following closely, you'll know that this seems like a lot of redundant and repetition, redundancy and repetition in the section. Um, You know, it's just... The writer's really driving home, everything's covered in in, uh, gold. And it seems like there's a general consensus among scholars that at some point in time, maybe even multiple points in time, scribes attempted to help the section out to make it a little bit more readable, a little bit more accessible to the average reader. And they tried to clarify some of the confusion that was present in the Book of Kings and make it more closely aligned with what's going on in Chronicles. The problem is scholars can't agree which portions of this were original to kings and what were later additions. So we we don't know what um, what's going on here as far as um, what's the oldest parts of this text and what are the 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 um, additions. So trying to figure that out, there is is ridiculous. I tried to read some of the explanations and I'm just going to be honest. I just glazed over. So while the nerdiest among us enjoy these types of things, I don't think it would be very helpful to anybody else. I think it would just be, you know, boring details. And I decided not to even try to untangle the mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, I, I think we need to be looking at what the text is trying to tell us. And that's pretty simple. We can figure that out. Solomon built a temple of God, to God. It's a historical fact. We have it set within these date stamps and times, and then we have it supported 
by, you know, materials and um, things that would have been consistent with uh, building temples in that time frame. Uh, it was a monumental, extravagant feat. That's something the text is really trying to drive home. And it served as a place of worship. And it served as a place to codify and unify the national identity of Israel as a nation who is a portion and inheritance of God. So the facts and figures might be interesting, but they're they're just curiosities to indulge in as far as I'm concerned, because they don't really impact the message as far as practice of our faith. So, you know, if you if you want to go down that rabbit hole, more more power to you. I, I'm glad there are people who want to expend their brain power on those kinds of questions. To me, I I think there's a point where you can go overboard on the nerdiness. I I know I shouldn't say that. I you're shocked to hear me admit it, but anyhow. So um, verse 23. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub five cubits, the other wing of the cherub, and it was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Verse 25, and the other cherub also measured 10 cubits, but the cherub had the same measure from, uh, same measure and the same form. Verse 26, the height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was that of the other cherub, and he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, so the wing of one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So um, I almost hate that I'm getting to this point because we're going to have to cut this conversation into chunks. Uh, the cherubim are endlessly fascinating. They yeah. are, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there is so much material and so much material I wish we had. Yeah, and I think I think the first point we should start with the cherub or, or cherubim is that uh, they're not puti. This is correct. So if, if anyone doesn't know what puti is, you know, you see the little winged critters, uh, little <laughs> little chubby babies with wings in the Italian Renaissance paintings. Those are actually called puti. They are not cherubs. They're not cherubim. They're mm-hmm. they're puti. That's the yeah. Or put, puto is the singular. There you go. Yeah. So. And, you know, and we've, we've popularized this idea uh, of little chubby babies and, uh, you know, and even in Greek mythology, when we talked about Cupid and uh, he was, uh, Cupid's become this little chubby baby over the years, but he was actually a, um, a youth, a young man in, in Greek mythology. And, well, and I, now I will say, you know, so, I mean, cause the, the chair was supposed to be like, throne guardian type creatures Mm -hmm. you know so they're supposed to be intimidating and while a you know a baby capable of guarding (laughs) a throne is creepy um not so much intimidating yeah i think i'd run from that uh now that you've said it out loud and i've got this image (laughs) in my head um i'm thinking of one of our nieces who at two years old i watched rip apart a corrugated cardboard box with her teeth and i'm like yeah i find this wholly relatable (laughs) absolutely disturbing um yeah and that's the thing when we when we start talking about anything angelic anything belonging to the spiritual realm 
I think we really need to work hard at trying to understand what it meant in that day and age, because we have a lot of popular misconceptions. Uh, you, you know, a, a popular one is that when we die, we become angels. No, that's not how that works. And, you know, I can't find any place in the Bible where one being becomes another being just because of a change in address. Uh, and there's so many reasons that just doesn't seem to work. Uh, whether we're talking about fallen angels becoming demons, that's a fallacy too. Um, humans don't become angels. This is our tradition, and this is culture uh, informing our ideas versus um, what the Bible actually has to say. So, I mean, angels are always angels. There are different classifications of angels. We can talk about the cherubim, the seraphim. Um, angel itself is a function of these spiritual beings. Uh, an angel simply means a messenger. So this is whenever we have one of these these spiritual beings taking a message from God to a human. So this does not change who they are as far as being a seraphim, a cherubim, uh, the other one, all the, everything else is falling on my head as far as titles for uh, angels. So yeah, and, I, and now that I've, and now that I've started down that path, you know, you're talking about they're sending a messenger and usually one of the first things they say is, is do not be afraid. Right. And then I was like, like, yeah, because they were kind of scary looking. Then I was like, but, you know, just finding a random baby who's talking the way that <laughs> uh, now I'm like on the I'm not, now I'm like on the horror movie train with with these babies oh talking like adults and things. So um, was it the there's nothing more beautiful than a laugh of a child <laughs> unless it's 3 a.m. and you don't have a child? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's but. um yeah, so you know what? Let's get into all of this because we're going to really dive, do a deep dive into a lot of um, not just uh, talk about angels within Israel, but uh, cherub within other cultures and how knowing what their function and purpose is in different cultures actually helps us understand what the Bible is representing. Because one of the really um, interesting things about the cherub and the Bible is. The Bible never really goes into a lot of description about the cherubs, except for in Ezekiel, and we'll talk about that. But most of the time when it talks about the cherubim, you don't get a, a description. And one of the things that tells us is the biblical writers expected you to know what they looked like. Right. They expected you to know what this angelic messenger appeared as. Now, really let that sink in, because not everybody's going to make it to Jerusalem. Not everybody's going to see the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, hopefully, I mean, they... God, didn't, God didn't come down to the biblical writers and said, I need you to write this. I know nobody knows what this word means, right. but I need you to put it in the text. Yeah, no, not, that's not the way it happened. I'm, I'm sorry. He didn't have people write nonsense and expect his revelation to make sense to the rest of the world. So. Um, you know, we, we've got to quit thinking that I mean, that model only works if you assume that you can only understand the Bible if God has, you know, supernaturally revealed it to you. Don't even get me started on that. We're going to talk about that. Uh, I've got notes because there's actually some stuff that, that um, 
we're going to see how the cherub actually play into this type of uh, mysticism where the only way you can know God is through the supernatural revelation. And we're going to talk about how the teachings on the cherubim that grew out of these biblical passages actually influence this type of um, Jewish Gnosticism, essentially. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and you know, when you start looking at how these fallacies began to creep into Judaism, I think one of the benefits is we can see how those same kind of fallacies can creep into Christianity. Yes, they're going to have different terminologies and they're going to be different names for them, but the function and the way they work and attach themselves as a parasitic um, belief system onto Christianity, it, it's the same. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely the same. So anyway, um, we're an hour and I've got nurses coming by, so I'm going to need to uh, cut this off here and we'll return to the story of the cherubs next week. Well, I am, I'm very excited about next week. So I always like hearing about that kind of thing. Um, just because we don't get much of it in uh, in kind of popular Christianity and in the church, and what we do get is often uh, caricatured or just Skewed. lazily researched. Um, yeah. So, or or it's, or it's kind of written off as something like, uh, well, this is in the Bible, but it's kind of weird, so we don't talk about it. <laughs> right. No, that's but, what we're here for. <laughs> but that's what we do. It's weird, so we talk about it. So exactly. Anyway, we identify uh, too much with weirdness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> used to sitting by ourselves at parties so whatever um <laughs> i guess uh with that in mind everyone have a good week and we will see everybody next time thanks for joining us if you like what you heard please write us a review share us with a friend um kind of get the word out uh on what we're doing and uh we will see you next week uh have a good one thanks bye, bye. you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.